Our scripture for this morning comes from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, at the beginning of this pandemic, I was convinced that I was going to use this time to, to change my life. To become the master of house projects, to set workout goals, to memorize scripture. I was going to use quarantine to just, just get all of those bad habits away and replace them all with good habits. And at some point, a few weeks into quarantine, about the time uh, my wife and I finished watching an episode of the Netflix documentary, The Tiger King, uh, it was pretty clear that, that quarantine was not producing life-altering change, that all the pandemic was doing was strengthening the bad habits that I already had, uh, that my life was consumed with a show about this guy, which is obviously a problem. And that doesn't mean that the occasional Netflix show is is wrong. It's not. Uh, But what it does mean is that I I began this season of life with a vision of, of where I wanted my life to go, and I totally failed at it. That meaningful life change is is hard. And I want to begin this series, We Can Change, by asking the question, why? And some people respond to that question with cynicism. People never change. That's just how life is, right? This, a cynical approach. Other people respond with like, nah, man, I just, once I find the podcast or the book, which is why our self-help industry is a $13 billion industry. There are hundreds of books, podcasts, with their latest life hacks promising just If you take this part seriously, then now you can finally change. And I just want to begin with a promise. This is not my attempt to join that industry. There will be no Tony Robbins exercises during this sermon series. We can change. Um, But I do want to begin with a very optimistic thought approach, whatever, that, that like as Christians, we can change in meaningful ways. You do not have to be stuck in the doom loop of your own bad habits forever. And so this morning, we're going to start this series. We're, we're going to actually be in Romans 12 uh, through this entire series, but I want to begin this series by asking, by asking two questions. First is, what are we changing? Right? What is it that we're supposed to change in the first place? And then two, how do we do it? Uh, so what are, we cha- what are we changing and how do we change? <clears throat> Now, I grew up in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana, which was, uh, which was one of the first planned cities in our country that lots of people, when they got to, to this, the land that became Indianapolis, they looked at that and they're like, man, a lot of people are going to want to live here. We've got to build a city um, here. So they did that, which meant Indianapolis is a grid city. So if you're at 56th Street on the west side of Indianapolis, 10 miles west of downtown, it's 56th Street, 10 miles east of downtown um, as well. It was a, it was a, it's a perfectly planned grid City. So when I moved to Kansas City, which is not a perfectly planned grid city, it made life very difficult for me. Streets like Schweitzer uh, go for a while, then they just stop, and then they just start up again, like a mile later, which makes no sense to me. Why don't you go with another name? But then there are other streets 
that, uh, that do go on for a while, and they just change names uh, in random places. So you're on Lackman for a while, then all of a sudden you're on Black Bob. And I'm like, what happened to Lackman, and who's Bob? Like, what, what, who designed this city? Um, and yet, uh, uh, this reminds me of, of one of uh, Yogi Berra's uh, famous uh, quotes, that if you don't know where you are going, you might end up someplace else. And I just want to be like, where are we going as Christians? What are we changing into? What are we, what are we becoming? And I want to just hear again Paul's answer to that, that question, that we are not to be conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. In other words, Paul says that the point of the Christian life is to be, to be and changed, that all that we do is good and pleasing to God. As of right now, all that I do is not good and pleasing to God. Tiger King is the example. However, in all my exploring and getting lost in Kansas City, trying to figure out, you know, the different pathways of the city, because I always knew where I was going, I got there. And so I just want to begin with, with the question, where are we going as, as Christians? And so Paul says, well, it's to be, it's to be changed, it's to be transformed. And, and one of my favorite verses that I think gives us that end point, where we're headed if we believe in Jesus, is 1 John 3, 2, where, where John writes this about where we're going as Christians. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. In other words, the end goal for all of, of us as Christians is that we will be like Jesus. Right? So, and that, I think that requires a little bit of a reframing. Often when I think, okay, where am I going as a Christian? It's a place. It's heaven. But the New Testament does more work of, of actually who you're becoming than where you're going. And we are going to be like Jesus. And so I want to begin with, I think, what's a really helpful definition of where we're headed that's, that's Dallas Willard's. What the aim of our change is as Christians, and here's what he writes, that we're going to be transformed into people who, who uh, the kind of people who easy, do easily and routinely what Jesus said and did without having to think much about it. That we're going to become the kind of people who do easily and routinely what Jesus said and did without having to think much about it. In Christ, that is my future. That is your future. We are going to become the sorts of people who do easily, routinely, automatically what Jesus said and did. And that, listen, that sounds a little ridiculous and unattainable, but that's the promise of 1 John 3. We shall be like him. We shall become people who do easily and routinely what Jesus said and did. That's a promise I think you and I need to to put front of mind as we begin this series of, of change. This isn't just to knock out a few bad habits. This isn't just to, you know, to grip the steering wheel with a grip of death and hold on for dear life to get to heaven one day. Actually, like we're on this process of being transformed to becoming people like Christ. So just do some imaginative work for a minute. What will you be like when you are perfect? In the new heavens and new earth, when you do easily and routinely what Jesus said and did, what will your, your closest friends look like? What will your spouse look like? What will your brother or your sister look like when they perfectly image Christ, when they shall be like him? 1 John 3. 
Now, obviously, we don't get there in this life. I want to be very clear about that. And yet, this is, this is an incredible time to grow, a pandemic, where our lives are disrupted. We're going to enter into the next few months. It's going to be an incredible opportunity to grow as people with an election, race, uh, working through the, the racial tensions that are part of our culture in this moment, working through uh, how we respond to a pandemic. What would be the, the response, the automatic, easy response of Jesus to all of these tensions? Those are the sort of people we're becoming. And, and I think too often we lose sight of that as our vision for life. Not just to hold on to dear life until we, we get to heaven, but actually to become the sorts of people who do easily and routinely and automatically what Jesus would say and do. So that's what we're, that's what we're becoming. That's what we're changing, right? So no, this is not a series about how to stop wasting your time on dumb Netflix shows, right? Although this, I think that will be an outcome of this series. Uh, that's not the goal. The goal of the series is you're going to be like Jesus, so let's begin to think about that, dream about that, what that might look like. So question one, what are we changing? Well, we're changing everything about ourselves to become like Christ. So secondly, this is the more interesting thing maybe, is how do we do that? How do we change? And in many ways, like that's going to be the entire series. But there are two ways I want to answer that question this morning as we begin. The first is I want to give you an overview of, Paul says we're, we're changed the renewal of our minds. And I want to First, go give you about five minutes of neuroscience, what that means, how our minds change. And I know you're just like, oh no, this is going to get boring. Just hold on. And then secondly, I'm going to show you how basically what neuroscience has learned, learned in the last 10 to 15 years affirms what Paul is doing in the book of Romans. So like five minutes of neuroscience, which is going to be interesting. It will end with a Diet Coke commercial. Um, five minutes of neuroscience and then how, that, how, how that's actually playing out in Romans. All right, so first, uh, the neuroscience. Our brain has, has two, basically two hemispheres, a left and a right. And the left side of your brain is the rational side. It's the side that reasons with you. It takes in and stores information. It processes uh, uh, through the, 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 the world around you. And often how we think about change is, well, the way I change is I need new information. And so the way to change is to read something or to listen to a podcast or to take in some new information. And then once I've taken that new information, then I'm going to make my life look differently. And uh, most of us should hopefully recognize by now, information does not typically lead to change. And there's a reason for that. But my guess is most of us have enough information. You have more than enough information already to how to change your life. You don't need more information. Uh, what you need is something else, which is what the right brain does the right brain is is the automatic center of our being, and so the left brain sort of surveys the the uh, the world around us and takes a long time to process. Your right brain is automatic; it responds automatically to the the setting around you. Here's how uh, Jim Wilder, who is a Christian psychologist, describes how our right brain works. The right side starts processing our surroundings and draws conclusions before the left side is even aware of what is happening. Our right brain governs the whole range of relational life, who we love, our emotional reactions to our surroundings, our ability to calm ourselves, and our identity, both as individuals and community, and character formation. Our right brain governs our automatic responses, which means if I am to become the kind of person who does easily and routinely, automatically, what Jesus would say and do if he were here, um, I'm going to have to work on that side of my brain. And it's why, if you remember the old uh, bracelets, what would Jesus do? 
They alter, it's a good idea, but it doesn't work because by the time I've asked the question, what would Jesus done, I've already done something, right? By the time I can even process that question, I've already made the decision about what I'm going to do. And likewise, I, didn't, I don't think Jesus was like walking around the earth like, all right, I'm Jesus, Messiah. What should I do right now? Um, it was automatic. It was easy. It was routine. So the question becomes, well, what, what does right brain change? What does that look like? And unfortunately, it's, it's the opposite of what most Christian discipleship is. Most Christian vision of discipleship works on your left brain. You need to read something. You need to take a class. You need to learn new information. And all those things are important. We're actually doing that right now. I'm giving you new information right now. So it's not that that's unimportant or it doesn't matter. But what what needs to be recognized is those things are are a longer term and less likely to produce actual change in your life than working on the right side of your brain. So, how do we work on the right side of our brain? And uh, in their book, uh, in the book, uh, Why You Do the Things You Do, the authors point out that the, the right brain is governed automatically by how we respond to four questions. And basically, how you respond to these four questions are going to determine how you react to other people, how you respond. And here are those four questions. Number one, am I worthy of being loved? Number two, am I able to do what I need to do to get the love that I need? Three, are other people reliable and trustworthy? And four, are are people accessible and willing to respond to me when I need them? In other words, the, the right brain is governed by relationships. By how others have treated us. Because you, listen, all of us can answer those questions. Well, of course I'm supposed to say yes to all four, but, but that's the problem is our answers to those questions are not based on our left side processing of them. They are based on how other people have responded to us over life. And if, if someone key in your life has repeatedly given you an implicit message or an explicit message that you are not worthy of being loved, that you, are, uh, you will never do enough for them in order for them to earn your, your love or, or for you to earn their love, if other people have not been reliable or trustworthy to you, then you're going to have automatic reactions that are not going to be in the way of Jesus. That how we answer those questions are the most formative parts to, our, to the way we live in this world, to the way we act and change and, and lead. And more than that, uh, those questions are not questions we answer ourselves. They are, they're answers given to us by the most formative relationships that we have. Our close friends, our family, spiritual leaders. And so I can't take a class and, and learn, yes, I'm worthy of being loved. That only comes through relationships, through people, through their life and acts. And what neuroscience is showing us is that if, if we want to change, we actually we have to answer yes to those four questions. But that comes through relationships, not through information. That ultimately what neuroscience is, is telling us is we are loved into change. We are loved into change. And this is what every advertiser already knows. All right, so I, a few, if you remember about a year ago, I, uh, I made fun of Diet Coke in a commercial. It feels like it's about time to do that again. Um, and so what I pointed out was Diet Coke advertisers, they have a bit of a problem on their hands, which is they have a product, one, that tastes awful, does not taste good, and two, it like scientifically has been proven to give you cancer and kill you. So you've got a product, it doesn't taste good. And it kills you. It kills people. Um, so they're not going to give you information about that. They're going to they're going to do a different track at, at trying to get you to drink their uh, their product. So a 15 second ad. Take a look. 
They say only nerds drink Diet Coke. Maybe. But those nerds are the ones who think the things that solve the problems, that change the world, that ultimately result in making cha-ching. Get smart. Drink up. All right, so in 15 seconds, they answered all four of those questions for you. One, am I worthy of being loved? Hey, listen, you're not a nerd. You're actually brilliant, and you're going to change the world. Yes, you're worthy of being loved. Two, are you able to do what you need to do to get the love that you need? Yes. You're going to produce something that's going to be so important for other people, they will love you and embrace you and respond. Three, are there people reliable and trustworthy? Four, are there people accessible and willing to respond to me? Yes. I mean, the commercial ends with a guy alone and people just surrounding him. I mean, Diet Coke understands, it, listen, they're not going to give you the four reasons why you should drink Diet Coke. They're going to, they're going to come at you relationally. You're worthy. People will love you. People do love you. Look at you. Like that, that's what they're going at. And they understand this is how people will change and buy their, their product. This 15-second ad is also the basis of UCLA professor Dr. Alan Shore, uh, his writing around our right brain and how we change through it. And he has the most interesting definition of joy that I've ever heard. Here it is. This is his definition of joy. Is joy is someone who is glad to be with me, being the sparkle in someone's eye. Now, I'll be honest, that's a little feminine, and so I want to, there's guys who are like, that just sounds weird. But think of uh, the many of you maybe who have seen the HBO uh, miniseries Band of Brothers, which is uh, the story of World War II, a group of guys who basically were, were central at overthrowing uh, Germany and winning the war, uh, the war in World War II. And those guys did incredible things, all because they... They went through incredible training together. They loved one another in a, in a very, you know, in a very guy sort of, of way that enabled them to go and produce incredible, like do incredible things, incredible change through their lives um, to go and conquer uh, a, a foreign enemy. So this isn't just like a feminine, like, oh, isn't everything not? Like love is also a, a self-sacrificing um, physical act as well. But this idea that joy um, comes through relationships and that's the means by which we change is central to our right brain. We change through joy, through relationships. We are loved into change, which means if, if we want to change, if we want to become the sort of people who do easily and routinely what Jesus does, we need other relationships to produce joy in us. And that happens when those four questions are affirmed. I am worthy of being loved. I can do what I need to do in order to be loved. Other people are reliable and trustworthy. Other people are accessible and willing to do and to respond to me when I need them. All right, so what does this have to do with Romans 12? Well, two things. One, Paul says we're changed through renewal of our minds, and what we're learning through neuroscience is the way our minds are renewed into change is joy through relationships with other people. That's, that is primary. That governs our automatic responses. If you're surrounded by people who, who act like they don't like you and don't want to be around you, that's going to produce results or produce cha- uh, responses in you. But two, that's actually what Paul has been doing through the entire book of Romans. So again, verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, there, uh, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of, of God, um, that I appeal to you, therefore, is, is a sign Paul is saying, okay, in light of everything I've just said, I now want you to do, do some things. And so Romans 12 through 14 is Paul giving out his vision of what the Christian life should look like that we should love our enemies, that we should be humble, that we should be generous towards the poor, towards other Christians, that we should be people of hospitality. But Paul doesn't just like lay a bunch of commands. Hey, y'all need to change. Like get your life together. This is what it should look like. No, what he's done 
is he's saying, listen, okay, now in light of everything I just told you for 11 chapters, this is what your life should look like. But he's, he's building it on the 11 chapters before. And what has, been Paul, what, Paul, what has Paul been doing for those 11 chapters? But demonstrating to you and me the secure and unshakable and profound relationship of joy that you and I have in God through Christ. I mean, you take these four questions and you run them through Romans 1 through 11, and there's some pretty profound things happening. Question one, am I worthy of being loved by God? Romans 5.8, God shows His love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So those of us who approach God thinking, oh, I'm a sinner, He doesn't want to hear from me, right? I'm not worthy to, to be loved by Him, Romans 5 says that's not true. God knew your sin, He knew your brokenness, He knew your flaws. And in that, in, when you were in that state, he sent his own son to die, to cover the cost of our, our own brokenness. Yes, you are worthy of God's love. He's demonstrated to you that to us through Christ. Question two, am I able to do what I need to do to get the love I need from God? Romans 9, 16. So then it's salvation. Salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Right? Salvation does not come because you and I do the things that we need to do to God so that He will love us in return. He has done those things for us. And our relationship to Him is not built on our effort, but on His mercy. And that word mercy shows up again in Romans 12. Right? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. Right? So I, everything I've said, which is rooted in the mercy of God, which is, which is built on the idea you and I do not have to do anything to earn God's love and approval. It's been done for us through Jesus Christ. And then questions three and four. Is God reliable and trustworthy? Is he accessible and willing to respond to me when I need him? Romans 8, 37-39. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. That what Romans 1 through 11 does is takes, you know, all that stuff in the Diet Coke commercial and shoves it in the trash. And it's like, there's some way better joy and relationship available to you through God and Christ. You don't have to perform. You don't have to be enough to be worthy to Him. And God has given His own Son to ensure that nothing in this creation can separate you from His love. So, how do we change? How do we become the sort of person who does automatically, easily, routinely the sort of things that Jesus said and did? And the answer is through relationships. And the first relationship being that relationship to God and building that relationship on His mercy, on His grace, on His kindness. And here's the thing. I can preach that to you and and try to convince you to believe it. But the reality is your right brain is firing at all times Reasons why you cannot believe those things about God. And as much as they're rooted in truth in Scripture and told to us very plainly, it's so easy to begin to doubt that God is all of those things towards us. The most important like, first step to change is that relationship with God. <laughs> Believing those four questions are an emphatic yes from Him towards us. 
And listen, in one sense, like this is that's an incredibly probably letdown of an idea for a series, right? It's like, man, this, let's get. How do we change? Let's do something revolutionary. And basically, my answer to you is, you have to believe that God loves you. <laughs> like that's how you change. Is you have to be so consumed by the idea that God loves you, which has been the Christian theory of change through most of history. That the gospel comes first. Before God comes and lays demands on you, He first first comes to you in Jesus Christ and offers a relationship. To you, the problem is it's really hard to believe that that's actually true because of the way our right brain works and because of the relationships around us. So there's, this is not a, a unique idea, a revolutionary new idea, but there are two unique angles on this that are the core of this series that we're going to unpack moving forward. And the first is that I, I do not change through personal efforts, through trying harder, I change in community with others. By, by this being a, a caring family, a church community, where we, we, we lean into being like uh, people of love to one another, that makes God more plausible to each other. Right? It's the health of this community, the relationships we have in this room, determine how other people view God. And the problem is that's the exact opposite of how in our culture we tend to view the church. The church, its leaders, other Christians tend to be viewed as spiritual advisors with whom I will agree until they say something I don't like, then I will disagree. And depending on how strong I disagree with them, I leave or I, I just disengage in, in some other way. Rather than seeing one another as relationships to whom we're committed with one another to work out those disagreements, we actually never get to that place of deep relational connection because the first, time, the first moment when the spiritual advice isn't what I like anymore, I just move on. But the church is, is not a, spiritual advi- a place of spiritual ed- advice. And I love the way Eugene Peterson named this in our culture. He wrote, uh, and this is a little bit of paraphrasing what he said, uh, We enter our churches with the same mindset in which we go to the shopping mall to get something that will please or satisfy an appetite or need. We want help through a difficult time. We want meaning and significance in our ventures. We want God, in a way, but certainly not a jealous God. Not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mostly, we want to be our own God and stay in control, but have ancillary, idle assistance for the hard parts. What he's saying is, we want want relationships and we we want to go to heaven, certainly, but but the idea of following a jealous God who might call us to repentance or to change, most of us, and listen, this isn't us, I'm included in this, most of us don't want that. But that's the whole point of how we change through relationships is that, that one, change comes through relational depth. And the only way you get to relational depth is that you go through tension, you go through disagreement, you go through disappointment, and there's forgiveness, and there's grace, there's hurt, there's, there's, there's pain, and then there's reconciliation. But when our first response in, in culture and community is to withdraw once disagreement happens, you don't get to relational depth. The kind of relational depth that creates a community around you where you answer those four questions, yes. I am worthy of being loved, even when I fail. I, the people around me are reliable and trustworthy. When I fail them, they will still be there for me. Most churches can't create that because we come in hoping for Walmart instead of a spiritual community. So one, that's... We have to fight to the place of relational depth where the church can even be that place of change because we have relationships that have been through some things 
that produce real joy, that lead us to be the kind of people who right brain, our right brain functions really well. That's, that's the first angle. We're going to talk a lot about community and what community means in the series. And then second, and this is, this is, going, to, this is going to be hard, uh, but secondly, the relational wounds that are given to us affect our vision of God. The relational wounds we experience in our life, they have a direct import on how we view God. And the most common way I see this play out as a pastor is, is people who come in and have been through some sort of, of spiritual abuse in a past church or relational abuse in their, their family of origin. You cannot look at those folks and just say, you know, you just need to try harder. You just need to trust more. You just need to believe more. Like you can't, it's, that's, that's working at the left brain, missing the fact that the right brain and the experiences of their life, people have communicated explicitly to them, God is not to be trusted because I'm, I'm not to be trusted. God is not reliable because I'm not reliable. And God does not think you're worthy because I don't think you're, you're worthy. And listen, as a, as a pastor, that's something I have to guard in my own soul because we do that to one another. We sin against one another. And our relational wounds then, which, which govern our right side of the brain, affect how we approach to God. It's why, it's why we have a hard time believing God loves us deeply. He, he, he considers us worthy of a sacrifice of his own son. He's reliable and trustworthy. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. And so what I want to do, I want to offer a first step in, in healing, which isn't more information. It's a practice that, that I want to encourage you to enter into this week. And that is in your morning prayer to begin with the question, God, how do you want to love me today? And that, that's, when I first started asking myself that, it's, that seems like a self-indulgent question. And yet, if, if all of Romans is true, if God so loved you as a sinner that he expects nothing from your effort to contribute to your salvation, that he has created a salvation system whereby which nothing in creation, including your own sin, can separate you from his love, we should expect God, God's love not to be a theological concept we agree in the scriptures that we, we, you know, it's yes, I check yes on the theological statement, but it should be a lived reality daily experience. If God loves us, we should expect to experience that through the course of our day. And let me just give you a really shallow ex- example of that. Um, that uh, one of the days I prayed this prayer, um, I, was, I was behind uh, the whole day, uh, was stressed the whole day, and then I had to make a Costco run. And when I got to Costco, it was like, you know, I pulled in, you know, maybe a little faster than you should be driving in a parking lot, if we're being totally honest. And as I'm pulling in, I, I you know, for whatever reason, I go right to like the, the primo spots, which are never, they're, ne- they're always full of cars. But as I pull in, like literally in the, in the best spot in the whole part, like if there was a Lord Jesus Christ spot, this was the Costco Lord Jesus Christ spot. A car pulled out right as I'm pulling in. So we're like, I didn't have to slow down. It was like pulled out and I just pulled right. I didn't cut anyone else off. There wasn't someone waiting for that spot. I'm just like pulled right in, and I'm right by the entrance. And because I began my day with God, how do you want to love? Um, how do you want to love me today? That a parking spot became a visible demonstration of God's care and concern. From and listen, some of you are like that shallow, that's parking spot, and that's because your your vision of God's love is is off. You don't think He wants to love you in something as small as a parking lot, which any of us who are fathers do that all the time towards our children. So sit with that question five minutes each morning. God, how do you want to love me today? And then at the end of your day, come back to that question. Maybe you already had the experience. Maybe you've already, you lived it in the moment. Or maybe you missed it. 
and go back through your day. If you have a Google calendar, walk through it. Go back mentally through your day. And over time, my guess is you won't, you won't have to do it at, in the evening. You'll experience it in, in the moment. God's visible demonstration of his love towards you. If Romans 8 is true, and there's nothing in all creation that can separate you from his love, he wants to show you that today. He doesn't just want that to be an idea that lives on your left brain and that you think about from time to time. He wants that to, be your, to govern your automatic responses, that I live in a world in which I am, I am worthy of the love of God, I have received the love of God, and nothing can separate me from the love of God. That in order to change, you don't need, you don't need another podcast. <laughs> you don't need another life hack, a new purchase. You need a deeper, more personal and powerful experience of what Paul spent 11 chapters unpacking in Romans. That absolutely nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. And in light of that kind of love, we can be transformed by the renewal of our minds into the type of people who do easily, routinely, automatically the things that Jesus said and did. Let's pray. We come into your presence and name you as Father just recognizing all of the implications of, of that, that you, you gave us your own son so that we could be your children, that you create us a salvation whereby it's, it's not rooted in our works, in our efforts, in our exertions, but by your mercy. That's what it's rooted in. And the promise that in Christ, there's nothing that can separate us from your love. So we've spoken that. That's like a a true statement we're, we're tossing around on our left side of our brains. But God, for all of us in this room, we have experiences, we have histories, we have past that in our right brain makes all of what I just said so difficult to believe. Past hurts, past traumas, past wounds. And so we pray for your Spirit's presence just to enter in, to affirm those things, to affirm your love to us, that we would experience it with our whole selves, our whole lives, God, we would know those things to be true of you towards us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Or actually, we're going we're gonna to take a few minutes to do that practice right now. All, we all just lived a week, seven days. And while the band plays, some music, some singing eventually, I just want you to ask the question, God, how did you love me this past week? And maybe you need to start on Monday, maybe you need to maybe start on Wednesday. Monday and Tuesday were so bad, we're starting on Wednesday. Whatever it is, but to spend the next three minutes asking questions, God, how did you love me this week?